0: Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I am one half of your ordinary host, David Clement. Uh, My regular co-host, Yael, is uh, off gallivanting the beaches of Italy, so he is not with us this week. Uh, But I am joined by my trusty colleague, uh, Elizabeth Hicks, uh, coming to us from the great state of Michigan. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you for coming back uh, to share the duties here on Consumer Choice Radio.
1: Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me back. It's always a great time to be here.
0: So, lots to talk about in terms of the midterms. Um, mm-hmm. Let's start with Michigan. Uh, there's a couple good things to talk about. <laughs> uh, a couple big ones. I mean, the governor's race. It looks like Whitmer has won re-election. Um, yes. Was that a surprise to you at all? I mean, she was in the news a lot. There were all sorts of headlines about what she was limiting people from doing during COVID. But <laughs> as, a, as a local Michigander now, uh, were you shocked?
1: Um, you know, we thought this would be a pretty tight race. So I was shocked with the margins that she won by personally. She has been a pretty polarizing figure. So you love her hater. hate her. There's not a lot of people in the middle ground with, with our, our governor here in Michigan. Um, but what was interesting is I think the Republicans had a good shot this time. They just did not have... A lot of good candidates to pull From and I think the party got a bit Mm -hmm. Fractured um, going into This election which was interesting so that Obviously was a huge benefit to uh, Governor Whitmer And interestingly too for Michigan So not only did Whitmer win re-election But Democrats also took control Of the state legislature here Which this is the first time this Mm -hmm. has Happened in 40 years And so now Democrats have full Control over the state government here So that is a little bit alarming especially from a consumer perspective as to what's going to happen. Um, historically, we've seen some pretty bad policies come out of the uh, state house here in Lansing. So hopefully we'll have some good <laughs> Republicans to uh, to push back and, and certainly we'll be in that mix to uh, be defending consumers' rights here. So so definitely stay tuned for the uh, interesting things to come here in, in good old Michigan.
0: Yeah, what was what was the impression of Tudor Dixon? Because I know very little about her other than every time CNN talked about her, they said, well, election denier Tudor Dixon. (laughs) (laughs) What's I what's her back? Like, how was she perceived? Is that part of the problem? I mean, that's a theme that we'll get into down the road in terms of Trump's uh, picks, and whether or not they were viable or not. But um, yeah, what, what was the take on her?
1: You know, interestingly, I find her and Whitmer to be pretty similar. They're just on the different different sides of the same coin. Um, and so they are pretty complementary to one another. I'm sure they would hate if they heard me actually say that. But, um, you know, I think Tudor, she had a lot going for her as well. Um, And I think, too, again, like they I think Republicans did a good job here in Michigan, looking at what worked for Governor Whitmer um, and kind of found a candidate that mirrored a lot of those qualities, which I think Tudor has. So she was well received here. And again, people were eager to get somebody other than Whitmer. If you're not a Whitmer fan, you alluded to this earlier, but Mm -hmm. she had a lot of bad policies during covid times. um, And it was very hypocritical to some regard where for instance you know she was telling people do not leave the state you guys need to stay in place stay at home quarantine and then she was flying a private jet down to Florida um so just a lot of different things like that that have not been great um so yeah so Tudor though she I think we'll see more from her in the future. Um, but I think, too, what's interesting as well is this election, I think, set up Whitmer for a bigger play in the future. So I would not be surprised if we saw her make a potential presidential run at some point or try to get on a, a VP slot for a ticket.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk of I think that was the. um as much as the, the people were clamoring about DeSantis's success in Florida, the inverse of that success was, was Whitmer in Michigan in terms of taking the state house and winning mm-hmm. quite convincingly. Um, yeah. And so a lot of people are kind of seeing her as a, as a potential um, ticket at some point. Uh, totally. Which is uh, intriguing, intriguing, intriguing. Uh, another race I want to talk about in Michigan – Is in Grand Rapids. um, The third congressional district. um, That was Justin Amash's seat. Um, It was Peter Myers district. He was primaried by, a, my understanding, very Trumpy person. Someone very much supported by Trump. Um, And that person lost. uh, And that that district has flipped um to the democrats um yes do you is that a correct assessment of what happened
1: yeah i think that's pretty safe to say yeah i mean it, it it's heartbreaking to see this happen in that district in particular because historically it's been so strong with like you said with justin amash and peter meyer then replacing him when he left congress and yes unfortunately um another republican outprimaried. uh um, Peter Meyer. And then um, unfortunately, that candidate lost to a Democrat. So now that district is held. Um, or will be held by Hillary Schulten, um, who is a Democrat over there. So mm-hmm. that is a really tough loss. I, I'm, it's really sad to me that, that Peter did not win his, um, his primary because he, I think, is a fantastic congressperson, and that takes a lot for me to say. And I think, you know, following the footsteps of Justin Amash, you know, he had some pretty big shoes to fill, in my opinion, but I, he did a great job. So I, I'm i curious as to what is going on in the minds of the voters over there because I think they definitely missed an opportunity
0: yeah yeah it's a, a very, and it's not the first time that this has happened where a Trump opponent has been primaried their replacement then loses the general election that happened in mm-hmm. um Mark Sanford's right uh, district I keep using the Canadian terminology um he <laughs> was primaried by I think it was Katie addington she lost to a democrat then nancy mace won uh the primary and she won that um she won that uh district back and then she fended off uh, another primary challenge from that same person and she ended up winning again um this week Uh, so it seems to be a bit of a trend uh, across the board where and i know there's been a lot of talk about this where trump's picks have not done very well. Um, I mean, looking at Georgia, that's going to a runoff, which means Herschel Walker could still win. Uh, But he underperformed Kemp, the governor, by several percentage points, which is um, largely why he lost. If you you thought that someone voting for Kemp, Republican governor Kemp, uh, would de facto vote for Walker, that wasn't the case. Yeah, by a couple couple hundred thousand votes, uh, and so here we go into a runoff. There are a couple other examples of this. Um,
1: that is interesting. What is Just your real... feeling? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I was looking at some data earlier, and it showed that you know this midterm election was unprecedented, and we're going to keep hearing that talking point again and again. I I assume from a lot of different people, but. For this midterm election, the voters were actually more likely to support candidates of different parties um, than any other year that we've seen. And many, it showed that gravitated towards more qualified politicians. So we saw a lot less of the kind of fringe people get um, traction, and we saw more actual qualified people get votes. So it's interesting that there was kind of that, um, the lack of votes for for Walker in Georgia, but you know there's at least a couple hundred thousand more for Governor Kemp, although they're on the same party. so it seems that voters really did not just vote party lines this year, which I think is an interesting change. We usually see that they do vote just party lines, so I think that is something that yeah. um, really made this this election cycle unique
0: and and so do you think I mean a lot of people have been chatting about this. do you think that this is the beginning? of the end of the mega era
1: you know it does seem that way i mean we've heard a lot about there being a red wave for this election cycle but in reality it was more of like a red hurricane in the sense that the only place affected was florida <laughs> and so
0: <it's... laughs> that's a good one. Oh, that's a really good one
1: love and it so love it So it's interesting because for Trump, that's just a bad look overall. And with that, it kind of seems like he handed the keys over to DeSantis in some regard. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious, uh, Trump is supposed to be making a statement or a conference of some sort. Um, He's going to do it after this election wrapped up, but he announced that it's going to be once the Georgia election wraps up. So I think he's kind of waiting to see and assess you know, who who his of his endorsements actually are getting elected and who isn't. I think that's really going to determine what happens for the presidential election next next cycle as well. So this was a super interesting election for midterms, and I think it's a, a weird indicator of what's to come.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, even Fox News was starting to you're starting to see a shift where it's like, okay, this is this is the party of Ron DeSantis now, not the party of Trump um and i mean i guess we'll we'll get into that in terms of ron desantis now whether you like him or you don't um uh, just an incredible. i mean he he narrowly won um, the race for governor the last time around he re-won mm-hmm. election uh this time around by I i don't know 15 20 it's crazy um they flipped a bunch of uh districts that that we're not traditionally Republican, they made serious inroads with demographics who didn't traditionally vote Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, it so it's starting to feel like, and and the thing is, the thing that gets me is right for I'm I'm apathetic to Desantis. If you had asked me about Desantis like two and a half years ago, I'd be like, oh, okay, I could see it. He he's done some really weird things. Um, (laughs) over the last little bit that make me kind of scratch my head. But you got to think, right? He took a bit of a different approach to COVID. Uh, A Mm -hmm. lot of people lambasted him for it, especially in the Northeast. And he Mm -hmm. wanted by an even more convincing margin. um, I think that probably says that, that the arguments about COVID and health restrictions are over. Um, do you think that that can do you think he can take that to the national level whatever his strategy was this time do you think he can translate that to success outside of florida or is this just like a microcosm or a little ecosystem he has
1: i think it could translate um to a national level I don't think it's gonna be a super easy and clear cut for him to do so, but I do think that he has the capability to do so. And I think one of the things that makes DeSantis viable um is just, I mean, his experience, the way he carries himself, he just you know presents more as a leader than some of our other options historically. Um, and so I think that's something mm-hmm. that, especially now, I mean, say what you want about Trump, say what you want about Biden. Either both of them have been very interesting as president. Um, and so I think America is very much craving just some normalcy again. And I think DeSantis can yeah. offer that. And so I think that's where he definitely has a shot on a national level, especially, you know, being able to rally Republicans behind him. He is he hits a lot of the check marks for I think Republican voters. And so I think he is one that could that Republican voting base could get excited about. Um And could pull through for. And interestingly, too, it sounds like Biden is is gearing up to make an announcement in the uh, near future that he's going to be running again in 2024. And so if he does announce and, and DeSantis announces... I think that's a pretty clear win for DeSantis personally.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Just given how, you know, Biden's, uh, his time so far has gone and ha- where the economy is at and how everything has played out. Again, I think we're going to see the pendulum swing how we thought it would swing for these elections, but I think we'll see it actually happen for the presidential election.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think so. I think a Biden, I mean, there's a lot of talk that if Biden doesn't run, it could be like Newsom versus um Versus DeSantis, which I think would be a real, I mean, on a pure entertainment level, would oh, just yeah. be a, a, a battle um, between totally. two polarizing um Polarizing governors um, who both have their successes and have their faults, uh, especially over the pandemic. Um, (laughs) So that'll that'll be interesting to see. Uh, We'll get a little more uh, into the specifics here when we return from the break. Um, Stay tuned for more on Consumer Choice Radio. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, uh, Liz. You and I were talking about Biden versus DeSantis. I know there, there's a previous episode where we chatted about this. I really do think that um, that it's probably probably DeSantis to lose if it's Biden versus DeSantis. Um, I don't want to. We don't need to rehash all of that analysis because we've you and I have already done that. Another theme that I wanted to chat with you about is. Um, Colorado, some of the market Democrats, uh, the (laughs) neoliberals, my favorite Democrats, um, probably where I place myself politically if I were an American, but uh, who knows, um, had a relatively good showing. I mean, Jared Polis um, won re-election rather convincingly. Mm -hmm. Michael Bennett um, won re-election in the Senate. We still don't know, but it looks like Adam Frisch may have edged out uh, Looney Tune Lauren Boebert by less than 100 (laughs) votes. It's still Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's it it is still up in the air. Um, So a good time for for folks who want to see the Dems, uh, maybe a little more economically minded and focused on on civil liberties and the economy and fiscal restraint.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it was a good showing for Colorado for their candidates. Um, some of their policies that they ended up passing, though, not,
0: not so great, great
1: unfortunately. Not great. Yeah. One of them being Proposition 126. They had a handful of alcohol-related um, measures on the ballot that's go around, which I found very interesting. Um, and one of them that passed would... Or I'm sorry, Prop 126, it did not pass, but if it did, it would have allowed third-party services like Instacart and DoorDash and um, things of those nature to deliver alcohol to Mm -hmm. consumers at their homes, which I am shocked that Colorado shot that down. Why would you not want that option to have these services just bring it directly to you? So I think that, unfortunately, was a big loss for consumers there
0: there was another one about grocery stores or something like that as well wasn't there selling alcohol Um, i think that got voted down or was that in a different state i could be wrong
1: nope i believe that was also in colorado i think there were um it's something to do with out-of-state liquor store chains not being able to expand into colorado is my understanding oh
0: cronyism
1: yeah (laughs) our favorite
0: (laughs) our favorite (laughs) Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, I mean the proposition that I, that, as a as a foreigner that always seems foreign to me. Um, yeah. Just because it's like so much is on the ballot. There's another one, not in Colorado, but in California, which is uh, grinding your gears. Let's hear about that one.
1: Oh, yes. This one really is upsetting to me. So it was uh, Proposition 31 in California, which passed. um, And this one banned flavored tobacco products, which includes menthol cigarettes and, of course, flavored vaping products, um, which to me is just a terrible play from California. Interestingly, Bloomberg put in about 35 million through his own <laughs> entity to support this ban um and so you know there's just a lot of kind of nefarious connections there but interestingly it's kind of it's somewhat questionable if this will actually uphold um There, it's in question if the federal tobacco laws here will allow states and localities to to actually prohibit the sales of tobacco. And this is something that the Supreme Court might actually make a ruling on in the near future. So a very interesting kind of uh, turn of events here. And hopefully the Supreme Court does rule on it and decides that states can't do this, in my opinion. To me, it's just really dampening consumer choice. Um, Again, the argument has been, let's protect the kids from vaping. Okay, I totally appreciate that. Let's put in measures, though, that protect the kids, but don't punish adult consumers from making a healthier choice and trying to – quit smoking cigarettes. So to me, it's just, it's terrible all around. The The implications of this are going to be awful. The black market's going to thrive. I would not be surprised if we see vaping rates increase, especially amongst youth, because guess what people, the black market is not checking IDs. They do not no. care how old you are and there's no regulation on these things. So we don't even know if they're getting, you know, a device or, or, or a product that actually lives up to quality standards. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's just so many better ways to go about this. And these flavor bands to me are just so dumb. <laughs> They're just well, not is, a good move to make.
0: It's hilariously hypocritical in California, which is otherwise a harm reduction state. I, I forget who it was, but somebody tweeted and it was like, so I can go into a, uh, like a drug access clinic to get yeah. safe heroin, yeah. But I cannot buy a flavored vape. How does this make any yeah. sense? Yeah,
1: or a Newport. Uh, yeah, it's like
0: Yeah. really really weird um because in I mean harm reduction is good. I mean that's at least my view. Absolutely. Uh you, you it, if people are addicted, um you want them not uh immediately dying from, <laughs> from the addiction. Yes. <laughs> whether, whether that's uh hard drugs or um or Nicotine that they're addicted to. And so, uh, yeah, just it seems so hypocritical. I I don't know. It, It seems very rare to see someone whom is actually consistent as a policymaker. Maybe you have seen or met someone who is, but it feels like you're either on the harm reduction side for hard drugs and you want to ban flavored vapes. Or you're okay with flavored vapes, but you think that anyone caught with possession of other of an illegal drug should go to jail. And it's like, nobody is consistent. Uh, Nobody has the right approach. I'd love to just have some somebody who's sane, (laughs) have a, have a viewpoint that's somewhat consistent. I mean, you could have both, you could be a hard prohibitionist on both sides. You'd be wrong, Yes, but at least you'd be consistent.
1: Yeah. And I think we see that more than people being consistent on the harm reduction side. Unfortunately, I wish we yeah. had people who were consistent with harm reduction when it comes to, you know, tobacco or nicotine as they are with, you know, any type of, of drugs or or hard substances like that. So it, it is unfortunate that we don't have, you know, someone to kind of champion this for us in, um, in Congress. But But I think at the state level, we do see a lot more consistency. It's just, you know, it's still a rarity, unfortunately. Um, But it's something that we're going to keep seeing a lot more is we're going to keep seeing a lot of these flavor bans and bans on menthol cigarettes. There's a handful of other localities that are currently trying this. They did not put it on the ballot, though. But I think with California passing this, of course, California is infamous for passing that policy. But unfortunately, a lot of states like New York and others will look at California as an example and will try to replicate. And so that's my concern here is not only is this a bad policy, but the fact that it's coming out of California could indicate that other states are going to try to, to implement similar policies as well, which is a huge loss for consumer choice and for for anyone who's in favor of harm reduction.
0: Yeah, yeah. You don't want to see that become the precedent and the model
1: no. that everybody
0: else follows. Um do you have any other takeaways from the midterms? Anything else you see or or themes that uh are maybe worth mentioning here? Um yeah, beyond I, obviously one, DeSantis and the red hurricane as you
1: you so described it yeah you know one last point for me on this i think has to go kind of looping back to biden versus trump in some regard when we look at the midterm elections last time you know we saw a huge blue wave with trump um i think the Mm -hmm. republicans ended up losing about 40 seats last time even despite the fact that the economy was doing pretty well but this time you know that that didn't happen the the inverse didn't happen here and so interestingly apparently back um in 2018 when we saw the blue wave happen over half of voters said that they were you know thinking about Donald Trump and you know how they could counteract what he was doing but for this cycle only a third of people were considering Biden and what he was and how to counteract what he was doing and so mm-hmm. i just don't think that this I was shocked with these results because I thought there would be a red wave. Historically, how it's always gone, the economy is in shambles. Inflation is terrible, it's hitting every single household. There, of course, were a couple other issues that were pretty um, mobilizing for the voter base. Um, But I really thought- Abortion being one. Yes, exactly. And, but I thought that inflation would um, outperform that. mobilization to some regard because inflation hits every single household. Um, But that's not Mm -hmm. what happened. So it was just really interesting. And I thought Biden being as polarizing as he is and passing as many bad policies as he has and getting the economy to the state where it's at now, I thought voters would respond to that more, you know, more aggressively. But I do have to hand it to the Democrats because I think they've done just a fantastic job at mobilizing their message and getting people to Mm -hmm. go out to the polls. They've really infiltrated not only, you know, like, obviously political spaces or media or news but culture i mean the amount of just like you know trash tv that i watch where i've seen them like make plays to get out the vote and make sure you vote blue is astounding i've not seen that once from the republican side so i think that has something to do with it a little bit as well
0: their get out the vote was was much better i mean they in right as much as uh, like you you explain some of the the issues with the Biden presidency, they were able to do what Obama was not able to do, and that's really hold off. Even though it does still look like the the Republicans may uh, or are going to take a a slight majority in the House, it is in theory still possible for them to take the Senate. It's not the blowout that everyone in polling suggested that it would be, and that's probably a testament to that get out the vote that you just described um so i guess maybe hats off to to uncle joe
1: yeah i mean we'll give credit where credit's due <laughs> we'll really yeah. shout out to uncle joe's uh a pr team <laughs> way to go yes
0: yeah yeah whoever he delegated to handle <laughs> this um that's a uh, very interesting stuff um i mean i'm seeing on twitter come across my my computer now there's a there's a don't run joe campaign Starting to pick up where Democrats are encouraging him not to run. Um, Mm. I mean, you know what it's like to have an elected representative who may be too old. You're from the great state of Iowa, Chuck Grassley, 89 years old, just reelected. He will be 95 when this term ends. Um, What's your take on, on, I mean, there's an age minimum for president. I don't know why that is. Um
1: I mean if there's an age minimum in my opinion there needs to be an age maximum I mean yeah. if you look at the average age of our politicians it is very old I think the average age is somewhere in the 70s it's a very old I think we have the oldest like group of politicians of any country in the world if you average it out Yeah. and Chuck, Chuck Grassley is one of them I mean he has been a career politician for decades and I mean he is still pretty um with it I have to give him credit for that mm-hmm. but at the same time it's time to kind of get out of the way and let somebody new come in and bring, a, you know, kind of a refreshing view of new policies and stuff. He's just very old and, and archaic.
0: Yeah, you would you would kind of like the Senate and Congress to look like America. It doesn't mean that it's yeah. filled with a bunch of 30 somethings like us. Um, but you would hope to see some representation i mean across all demographics i think it's certainly getting better in regards to female representation and and Mm -hmm. visible minorities but age seems to be one of those things that really is lacking where it's like okay how old you look at some committee and you're like the average age in this committee is like 74 yeah Uh, and i've always (laughs) wondered for the career politicians like grassley it's like don't you want to just like sit on a beach and (laughs) <laughs> Enjoy your grandchildren and like I don't know retire.
1: Right. I mean it's interesting because I mean Chuck Grassley is definitely I think he might be the oldest one in Congress. Uh, yeah, I he think is, he might yeah. be taking that cake. Um, but you know, there aren't many too far behind him. Nancy Pelosi being one. I mean, She's she is very up there in age. Diane Feinstein also very up Super there in old. age. I mean there's so obviously Biden I mean there's just so many of these politicians that are old <laughs> and yeah. so I you know I think it's just time for them to to take a seat and and you know let someone else take their place but it's interesting too because it's like why be a career politician well if we look at nancy pelosi for example it's uh, <laughs> you can make a pretty penny doing it is why yeah but the
0: thing is is that like maybe it's time to enjoy all that the hundreds of right. millions of dollars you've amassed i mean yeah you're gonna <laughs> leave a lot of it to your your family or your kids or whatever but like go buy an island and live on the beach and drink mai tais yeah. I just I don't know. I, there's no like route. that's like, oh, if I just keep at this, maybe I'll be president one day. <laughs> it's like yeah. that will not happen. So no. I don't know. It, what a time, uh, Liz. Thank you again um, for joining me here. We uh, will follow this up uh, with an interview with Dr. Sylvain Charbon about food inflation and greedflation. Um, so stay tuned for that. And, and Liz, uh, we'll have you back on shortly.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much.
0: And we are back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I am joined by Professor Sylvain Charbois from Dalhousie University, certified friend of the show, uh, now a multiple-repeat guest. Um, Sylvain, thank you very much for joining us again on Consumer Choice Radio.
2: My pleasure, David. It's been, uh, it's been a busy fall for sure. Yeah, yes, I'm sure yeah. it's been a busy fall for, uh, for you as well.
0: Yes, absolutely. There's there's a lot going on. Um, one of the, the topic that I wanted to talk with you uh, about today is first food inflation. Um, what what do we see? What is the landscape on food inflation? Uh, and then the concept of greed inflation. So, question number one, I suppose, would be um, where do you, how are Canadians uh, experiencing food inflation?
2: Uh, in one word, violently. Uh, essentially, because over uh, the last 11 months, it's been 11 months now that the food inflation rate has exceeded the general inflation rate. And when that happens, of course, people will notice food prices at the grocery store and they're noticing that the, those prices are increasing. Uh, and there's not there's not one safe place at the grocery store. Everything is more expensive. And so that's why it's 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 very difficult for a lot of people and based on our data, I would say that Canada is divided into two groups. Seventy five percent of Canadians are coping. They're they're figuring out ways to save uh, using points, coupons They're changing address. They're they're doing different things and they and they're coping and they're not necessarily affected by food inflation uh, in a severe matter. But there is that 25% that I think uh, are, are seeing their quality of life being compromised by food inflation. And I'm talking skipping meals, buying mm-hmm. less food, uh, using credit cards uh, to pay groceries without knowing when you're going to pay your balance back. and. Those are the kinds of things that we're seeing more and more. And if you talk to food banks, they're getting more, more traffic. Uh, I'm on the board of second harvest in Toronto. We're seeing more higher numbers now. So it's really, it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a, it's a really tough thing uh, to see right now for a quarter of our population.
0: And, and I guess that, poses a second question in terms of the source. And I know it's probably not an easy answer, but what are some of the sources of food inflation? Because obviously this is it's probably not unprecedented, but it is um, not a common occurrence to see food prices inflate like this.
2: Well, no, you want food inflation. It's just, I mean, the sweet spot for food inflation is what, 1.5 to 2.5%. Mm-hmm. And we've exceeded that for a very long time now. I can't remember last time I saw food inflation being below two point five percent. It was probably early twenty twenty one, and so um, and 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 frankly, it, it is a, a global phenomenon. The one thing that most Canadians uh, may not know is the fact that when you look at the G seven right now, Canada has the third lowest food inflation rate amongst G7 countries. And if you add superpowers like uh, Holland and and Denmark, those two countries are agri-food superpowers. They do produce a lot of food. Like the Netherlands, 61% of its land mass is dedicated to to agriculture Mm -hmm. and farming. I mean, those countries are amazing. Still, their inflation rate is actually above ours. Mm -hmm. So we're still number three. So in the grand scheme of things, we're not doing too badly, but – as I mentioned earlier, uh, Canadian families don't care what's going on in Germany or the U.S. or U.K. They're still paying more <laughs> for groceries. Yeah, yeah. And
0: they're, they're
2: and they're looking. I mean, they're looking for reasons, domestic reasons uh, for this phenomena. But in reality, uh, it's a sequence of different factors like climate change, Ukraine, energy costs. Um, Covid nineteen, supply chain fatigue. I mean, there's there's a series of different factors that have impacted the entire planet. So, uh, but you can feel that right now, Canadians are looking for a scapegoat domestically. Mm-hmm. They're looking mm-hmm. for uh, for one responsible party, and that's why we're hearing more about greedflation and just inflation and all of these <laughs> things yep. that are being said. And and frankly, I think most of these uh terms are are motivated motivated by uneducated narratives to be honest
0: yeah it seems like on one side uh the finger is pointed at um at Justin Trudeau and and the Bank of Canada and m- all of that we won't get into the nuances of monetary policy here uh and then on the other hand,
2: i mean you 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 also have, you have to think about central banks in general cuz yes. the Bank of Canada Actually, was slightly ahead of the Fed uh, last fall. Mm-hmm. I remember this time last year we were preparing Canada's food price report for 2022. Our forecast. and I actually we were we were seeing things that nobody nobody was talking about, like supply chain problems, and and we could see prices rise, which is why we came in with a seven percent for 2022. And everyone thought we were alarmist, but I do remember last fall. The Bank of Canada was the first one to acknowledge that supply chain problems could actually push prices higher. And that's exactly what happened, while the Fed was still talking about a transitory sort of mm-hmm. scheme. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure you remember that quite yeah, well, I David. And everything changed early 2022.
0: There were a lot of, a lot of uh, folks in the U.S. punditry system who were parroting the transitory line who now have egg on their face, because obviously that's not the case. On the other side, you have uh, progressives. I mean, I've seen it in the U.S. with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, but also in Canada with Jagmeet Singh. They're not pointing the finger at Trudeau. They're pointing the finger at grocery stores and what they deem as excessive profits. Um what merit, how is there merit to that claim? What are the numbers?
2: Uh, yes, in the U.S., I mean, it's, it, food inflation is being politicized both sides of the border, which is why Kroger is having a really hard time buying Albertsons. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Washington is all over that one. It's only 15% of the market share. 15%. We have two above that in Canada, mm-hmm. Loblaw and, and, and Empire. Uh, When you look at, so we've actually released three reports on greedflation now. We call it greedflation because, well, everyone talks about, you know, how do you measure greed? Essentially, that's what we've been trying to do. So the first report was in the summer, looking at final statements between 2017 to 2021. Didn't see a darn thing. We actually look at processing as well as CPG companies. Processors like McCain, Maple Leaf couldn't find anything, any evidence of, of abuse um, and then of course we went to the US, compared the US uh US-based grocers with Canada's. That was early September, nothing margins have remained constant, two to four percent. So, but for the third one, the third installment, which actually was released last week, we actually looked at 2022. Mm-hmm. And that's when we saw that there's a bit of a different story in 2022. So we looked at six years of data. Look at record highs. Basically, set benchmarks for each grocer because all of these companies are different.
1: Yeah, Metro, yeah.
2: Metro is 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 underperforming its historical high. Empire as well, but Loblaw is a bit of an outlier. Uh, Loblaw actually is making more than its historical high. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, it's about a million dollars a day over the first two quarters. So okay. six months. So it's 180 million It had to generate twenty-five billion dollars worth of business <laughs> to generate that extra. So in a grand scheme of things, it's still not too much, but it begs the question when you look at the statement of when you look at revenues with loblaws, you can't really know for sure if food sales are pushing profits higher because everything is put into one column. Uh, yeah, you
0: don't know if it's efficiencies in like in theory. Um, although I'm not the where there's inefficiencies in the, the the grocery system, I would have no idea. My exposure to the grocery system is just going to buy groceries. Um, but you would you you would assume that it, in theory could be possible that uh, a combination of increased prices plus some efficiencies somewhere could be. It's not just. It's not just.
2: It's just right now. I actually do believe that there's there is enough evidence which mm-hmm. would suggest that Loblaws is making more money selling lipsticks and perfume and precision drugs and T-shirts than selling food. Selling food, I think, margins have remained the same. But there's no there's no data to support it. So if when you hear uh, when you hear uh, people like uh, NDP leader Jackman Singh saying that. That, that grocers are gouging Canadians with food sales, there's there's no evidence of that. There's none. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so, so that's why we need to be a little bit careful here.
0: You, you Yeah, you raise a very good point. I hadn't thought about it until now, but not all grocery stores are the same. If I go to superstore, I can buy clothes, I can buy cosmetics, I can buy anything. If I go to No Frills or, or, or Longos or Metro, um, not necessarily the case. Um, so what so we're do, suggesting
2: so you... for... Grocers and the competition bureaus, perhaps, to entice uh, grocers to report separately food sales from everything else because the morality I'm sure you can appreciate, David the morality of selling food is uh, the moral aspect of selling food is very yeah. different than selling lipstick. And yeah. so that's yeah, why, I mean, yeah, I, I think the
0: political response to Labla is making an extra million dollars a day because Joe Fresh had a record quarter, people would be like, oh, okay, well, people like their clothes. Good for them. But if it's like they inflated the price of bread, bananas, insert any item, um, then there would be some outrage and probably some some call to action. Um, In regards to specific food items, which ones are the worst in regards to inflation and which ones are maybe the most resilient or have maybe come down in price?
2: Like right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, right now uh, into September, because that's all we have right now, uh, it's uh, bakery has been a problem. Uh, so, bread is, is, uh, has increased by about 16,
0: 17%. Uh, yeah. <laughs> For anyone listening, I say, uh oh, because bread fixing has happened in Canada and it was, a, it, it was a scandal that didn't reach the level in which I thought it should, but.
2: Well, that, that, I, I think honestly, David, I think uh, the Bureau's unfinished business around some of these investigations are pushing people to find uh, a different scapegoat. And, and that happens to be that portal into the food industry, grocers. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and that's why grocers are being unfairly targeted but but the investigation related to bread prices has been going on for 7 years it's still <laughs> ongoing 7 years in the US <laughs> meat packers were pointed at by the president biden within months gbs wrote a 56 million dollar check in compensation to consumers months yeah. uh, to to avoid a lawsuit so i mean the tone is very different in the US and like I said, Kroger is having a hard time at buying Albertsons because yeah,
0: inter-trust. they're they're
2: on it. They're but when 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 Safeway was bought by Sobey's in two thousand thirteen, nobody actually raised an eyebrow. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just just a, and and Sobey's is twenty four percent of the market, Albertsons and Kroger is fifteen percent combined. So yeah, it it's just a it. it that's why I think that the Commodity Bureau is partially responsible for what we're seeing right now, and there, it's conducting a study that will end in June 2023. That's a good thing because I think the study will help the Bureau becoming much more forceful and toler- authoritative. And we're already seeing it with the with the deal between uh, Rogers and Shaw right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, and we see it in yeah. airlines, and and there's yeah. there's extra. Uh, eyes on anything that could fall under the antitrust you can tell uh, that the
2: tone is starting to change already and I suspect it will impact food eventually
0: yeah yeah. Um, so we have about a minute here before we have to go to break I'm going to ask for you to envision some world where Prime Prime Minister Charlebois is uh, in the House of Commons uh, and he's tasked with solving the issue of food inflation, what are some of the things
2: you do in order to uh, right the ship? I would nationalize the food distribution system in Canada. I'm just oh. kidding. I'm kidding. It's <laughs> oh, was like, okay. <laughs> I thought, I'm gonna, I'm, Is I'm that gonna any... after saying it, I'm gonna pause and see Is it reaction, a hammer and but... sickle in your background there. <laughs> <laughs> you... But here, here's an idea though. Why not cr- create a crown corporation you know, a within the grocery industry, we already have one in banking. It's called Farm Credit Canada. I mean, okay, why not? Okay, okay, you know? okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you, I feel like you feel that, like that, that, that is, is beyond, that is beyond, beyond me, have to, I'd have to do but some heavy I, I wouldn't, some, you know, Obviously, have reading, I, would, I believe in the private sector. I think the private yeah, sector is yeah. doing a wonderful job feeding Canadians at a decent price. And like I said, the food inflation rate in Canada compared to other places around the world is not – that high. Mm-hmm, uh, it's mm-hmm. still high at 10.3%, but it's not that high.
1: Well, so
2: I'm a big believer in, in our, in our, in our, in our private companies, they're doing a f- phenomenal job uh, feeding Canadians. Uh, I would certainly look at the competition bureau to me, the starting point is the competition bureau. And how do we support independence? That, yes. that, that is the one thing that most people aren't talking about. The role of independent oligopolies aren't bad as long as, on the margins, on the margins, you actually have a decent suite of independence, and that's not what going what's going on right now.
0: Well, Professor Chalwa, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you again, and I'm sure we will uh, have you on as this uh, debate progresses. All right, take
2: care. Bye bye.